You guys, welcome. How are you? If you don't know, Jason and I were gone last week, so there's that. Did you miss us? I can feel that. I can feel that. Um, I have announcements for you, and I'm super excited about stuff that's going on. First of all, come back tonight for Ignite. Um, this is what we call Brookview's family meeting, and I am pumped for our agenda, for lack of a better word. Um, it's going to look a little different than any Ignite we've had before, so come to find out. Um, but we really are going to be centered in the story of God among us with the idea that um, that is part of what communion together is. So we're going to share a little bit of food, light food. So if you're a real hungry person, eat before you come. Uh, feed your children before you bring them because they're going to have popcorn, unless popcorn's dinner for them. Um, and they're going to have a movie night together. So we're really excited to get to be together, to sit around um, as a family and just share what God is doing and what he's up to in our lives. Um, second thing that we're excited about is, um, yeah, so we're going to have a parenting course here at the church um, and if your parenting kind of looks like this, we can promise you that at the end of five weeks, it's going to look like this. I'm totally kidding. That is my way of telling you. There is no guarantee. This is not a class where it's uh, five steps to the good parenting journey, how to get your kids to listen in 10 easy steps. Um, this is going to be gathered around tables talking about things like why are boundaries important? Um, what is our long-term goal in parenting? How do I meet my like notice my kids' needs and actually meet them and be in tune with that? And you're going to sit around tables with other parents, and Emily and I are going to facilitate that together. So if you know Emily Callen, you know there's some wisdom in the room, and I'm just stoked for that. Um, but that is starting on Sunday evenings, beginning February 26th at 5 o'clock in the evening. It'll go from 5 to 7 p.m. And we will serve dinner, and there will be child care. So you will be kid-free and not have to worry about babysitters for that. But our size is pretty limited. We want to keep it small so that the conversations are good and sweet and connective. Um, and so if you're interested in doing that, go to brookviewchurch.com and click on the parent course or class. I don't know what it's called on the tab. Course. There it is. And you'll be able to sign up for that. The cost for it is $50, and that's just to help with all the class supplies, the food that we'll be providing to you, and then paying a few babysitters. If you are someone that says, I am not interested in the class, but I love to make food and I love to watch kids, I would love to connect with you. So if you have my number, reach out to me. If you don't have my number, there's an online communication card at brookviewchurch.com, and we would love for you to fill that out. Mark whatever boxes, everyone that's here, fill that out. But if you specifically can help with that class, it's a five-week class, so five Sundays straight. And we would love to have your help. Even if you can't come for every week, I'd love to have you just for one if you could. Um, and then the last thing is, in order to get ready for Ignite, we need your help today, and we've done this before, and you guys are really good at it. 
At the end of church today, we're going to stack our chairs again on the sides of the walls. So we'll make a quick announcement about that at the end. But here's kind of a different way that we haven't stacked before. We're going to keep rows together. So like this front row, Eugene would go all the way this way and that one. So keep no commingling. Do you see that there? No commingling. Keep it like a high school retreat, all right? Your row does not belong with other rows. It's just your row. Okay, we, we aren't super exclusive around here except for when it comes to chairs. Um, all right, I'm going to be quiet now. We're, we're done. We're done. How many of you guys were here last week? God bless you guys. Uh, Mike, a little mic trouble for Bryce. <laughs> Rebecca, you're the batteries fairy. That was, that's really good. Uh, just was having a little trouble with the mic just now, so hopefully it'll last this morning. If not, I'm gonna shout, and it's gonna be awesome. So, a few years ago, um, our church spent a season thinking about blood and thunder. And I just want to say, if you were here for that season, and you know what I'm talking about, you were here and you were part of that, would you stand up real quick? Normally we don't do this, but... All right, that's good for now. If you're a prayer warrior, start praying. <laughs> so we spent this season thinking about blood and thunder. And if you weren't here for that, you're like, what is, what is that? Um, so about a year before COVID, um, together we asked the question, what does it take to see a, a move of God? And so we, we talked about this with a metaphor of like a two-part recipe of blood and thunder. And so in scripture, thunder is a picture of God's power. It's his divine touch, God's glory. For example, on Mount Sinai, in the giving of the Ten Commandments, it says, when, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Right? They stayed at a distance. God was present with them. He was moving. And so can you imagine, can you imagine that moment? 
the, just the awe of God that they felt. And this is the beginning of the redemption story. But we see thunder in the end as well, in the book of Revelation. John describes the glory of God that is to come. And here's the picture. He writes, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbles and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So thunder is often used in scripture as hyperbole. And it's understandable why, because if you've ever been in the middle of a thunderstorm, there's something about it that demands your attention, right? There's something inside all of us that responds to the rumble of thunder. Thunder has a way of reminding us that we're, that we're small, that we're human, that we can't control it and we don't manufacture it. There's, there's kind of a mystery to the occurrence of thunder. And so several years ago, we, we thought of thunder as what only God can do, right? It stands for what's outside of us, outside our capabilities, because one thing is clear in scripture, God is bigger than we are. He's eternal, he's all-powerful, he's present everywhere. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Okay, so that's, that's thunder. What about blood? Well, blood is a picture of, of life. Blood is a picture of sacrifice. It says in Leviticus, for the life of a creature is in the blood. And in the New Testament, Christian service is often described as sacrifice. Right? In the Old Testament, they sacrificed what? Animals, right? Multi, you know, sheep, deer, uh, goats, right? They, and so they shed their blood as an offering to God, a picture that pointed forward to the eventual sacrifice of Jesus. But after the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, we no longer sacrifice animals. Instead, Jesus' followers are invited to become living sacrifices, to live in such a way that our whole lives glorify God. Uh, Paul writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Paul encourages us to say, Jesus, in response to your goodness and love for me, I want to offer you my entire life as a sacrifice to you. I want to offer to you everything that I have, everything that I am. I am I'm yours. My life is a living sacrifice. So in this sense, blood is what God asks us to do. So it's blood is what God asks us to do. And I believe that if you take those two elements, blood and thunder, you take what we are called to do and, and we do it, and then you, take, you mix it with what only God can do and he does it, there's great power. So blood plus thunder equals a move of God. But what often happens is people kind of focus on one to the exclusion of the other. Some people behave as if it's all about God's power, like his sovereignty. And so they just sit around doing nothing, waiting for God to do something majestic. They don't take risks in faith or act or respond in obedience or move a finger. They want God's thunder, but they offer no blood. On the other hand, some people live as if like it's all up to me. 
and they work and they strive and they clamor and they effort, but there's no prayer, there's no worship, there's no sense of, no fasting, no sense of, you know, we, I need God, we need God. And lo and behold, the results of their endeavors end up very human, very natural. There's, there's a lot of blood, but there's no thunder, no supernatural. So here's the thing. God is inviting every one of us to go on a supernatural journey. He longs to wrap us in his thunder as we continuously offer our blood. So if we make our lives about his kingdom, not our own, if we embrace his mission, not our own, but it's easy to make our life about a whole lot of other stuff. Yes? It's easy to make our lives uh, all about what what I'll just call for the sake of today, a shadow mission. To allow our lives to deteriorate into something kind of selfish or trivial or self-absorbed. Now, today we're gonna, we're gonna walk through the book of Esther. And it is a story in the Old Testament with several characters that are given a choice between a mission, between God's mission and a shadow mission. It's a story about Jews living as exiles in a foreign land under a foreign king, and they are faced with all kinds of challenges. The the story itself spans 10 chapters, so you'd be really, I'm going to summarize most of it. Um, But the author really sets the scene for what's happening beautifully. So I'm going to begin just by reading to you the scene. Verse 1 says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So the author wants us to be blown away by the magnitude of King Xerxes' rule. He wants us to see that his kingdom was massive, 127 provinces. He was by far the most powerful man in the world at the time. And he loves to show off his power and wealth. Verse 2. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces. All of them were present. So he calls together like the who's who from the entire kingdom to party. And it says, verse four, for a full 180 days, He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Okay, can you guys imagine 180 straight days of partying? Like, is there anything in our world that would even compare to that? (laughs) Yes, sir. It's like a typical freshman year at Wazoo. I'm to- totally kidding. I mean, I love the kooks. Someone pointed out this morning that the chairs are a little bit kook color and was wondering if we could go with more of a straight purple. <laughs> Maybe with some gold in there for the, you know, the royalty of God. <laughs> 180 days. So verse five, when these 180 days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the city citadel of Susa. 
So after 180 days of partying with the elite of society, the king shows off even more, and he invites the entire city to the palace garden to party for seven days. And this party gets described in elaborate detail. So notice the extravagance of this thing. Verse 6, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. <laughs> so while all this was going on, Queen Vashti was throwing a nice little soiree for all her lady friends. And it says in verse 10 that on the seventh day of all this, when the king was in high spirits from wine, he sends from Queen Vashti. So he's been showing off his possessions all week long, and now he wants to show off his ultimate possession. And what do you guess he wanted to show the people about Vashti? You think it was her intellect? Did he call her in to solve impressive, difficult math equations? Not so much. It says he called her, verse 11, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Now, a shocking thing, thing happens, and this is where the story turns. Vashti says, no. Come parade myself before a mob of good old boys after seven days of Miller time? I don't think so. Right? So, so how does the king respond? Does he say, oh, you know, you're right, sweetheart. That was insensitive and chauvinistic. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me, honey. Not a chance. He, it says, the king became furious and burned with anger. Why? Because this struck at his sense of power and dominance and control. It, it made him look weak. It ate away at his image, his, his shadow mission. So, verse 13, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. And the writer wants us to catch the irony in, in all of this. The, the most powerful man in the world can't control his wife. So he goes to the Supreme Court and makes it a matter of state. Guys, what am I going to do with my wife? She won't listen. And check out the response of his advisors. They say, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And soon they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. 
There will be no end of disrespect and discord. (laughs) King, if you don't get a handle on your wife, we're all in trouble. (laughs) Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. She's going to be really disappointed about that. (laughs) Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. When the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from least to the greatest. Yeah, that's going to (laughs) happen. And and part part of what's happening in the story is that the writer is showing us what absolute brown nosers these advisors are. Right? They say to him, let this edict be proclaimed throughout your, your vast realm. Your kingdom is enormous, O king. They're saying, you demand, Xerxes. Right? So the king has surrounded himself with people that will reinforce his shadow mission. People that will tell him exactly what he wants to hear. And if we're not careful, we are all capable of doing this in our lives, right? We, we develop a shadow mission, and then we invite people into our inner circle who will encourage us in that shadow mission. So Vashti is banished, and now he needs a new queen. So he asks his personal attendants how to go about this. And his personal attendants, these are not the su- Supreme Court guys that are older. These are, these are young guys. These are high testosterone young men who give him their idea of what to look for in a new queen. Anybody want to guess their number one criteria? Yeah. <laughs> Beauty, baby. So here's what they suggest. They suggest that he hold a Miss Medes and Persians beauty contest that every province in the kingdom offers to the royal harem the best-looking woman in the province. Anybody remember how many provinces there are? 127. So they're sending to the king 127 of the hottest young women in the kingdom for his harem. And the girl who turns heads the most and makes the king go, wow, will become queen. She will become the ultimate trophy wife. So one of the young beauties is a, is, a, is a Jewish girl named Esther. We're told that she's an orphan girl, that she's raised by her cousin Mordecai. And we'll come back to Mordecai. He becomes important in this story later. But let me set this up for a little bit, because this is, this is kind of a big deal. This, this whole preparation to go in before the king, this is not a casual thing. This is, you guys, this is the date of a lifetime. And so I just have a, a couple of questions about dating for for our lady folk in here. Um, just a little honesty time. Think about the amount of time you spend preparing for a date. Okay, so, well, I mean, let's get it all in there. Bathing, hair, makeup, wardrobe selection, accessories, perfume. What am I missing, ladies? Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that came from Brian Durr, by the way. God bless you, Kelly. <laughs> a 
Okay, so let's, let's be honest, ladies, for a second. How many of you ever spent more than an hour getting ready for a date? Okay, all right. How many of you ever spent more time getting ready for the date than you actually spent on the date? <laughs> How many of you ever had more fun getting ready for the date? I'm just glad you didn't raise your hand on that. <laughs> but, but if you did, I'm sure it was one of those other guys. Okay, here's the, here's the prep time for Esther for, her, for this, this date. Check this out. Verse, verse 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. That is a lot of pressure for a first date, I'd say. But Esther is eye-poppingly beautiful, and she is chosen as the new queen. Her apparent mission is to be eye candy for the most powerful man on earth and to enjoy the luxury of palace life. And so you expect a life of comfort and lavishness for her. You expect this to be a happily ever after story. But there is a dark character in this story, and his name is Haman. He's King Xerxes' right-hand man, and he also has a shadow mission. Haman has an insatiable appetite for being praised and glorified. In fact, he can't sleep at night because all the king's men bow and worship Haman except one, and it happens to be Esther's cousin, Mordecai. Mordecai is also a royal official whose job is to sit at the city gate. In fact, he had at one time discovered a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. He exposed it and he saved the king's life. So Esther's cousin, Mordecai, is kind of a big deal. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. So check this out. We're told, verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So he goes to Xerxes and he asks him to issue a royal decree to not only kill Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people, all the Jews. Now, the king doesn't really care about justice. He's just not somebody who cares about that. He doesn't even know what people Haman's talking about. So he thoughtlessly issues the decree. He issues the decree of genocide. He orders the death of all of the Jews in the entire kingdom. Now, Mordecai gets word of the decree and he instantly sends a message to Esther. He says, you, you have to go to the king and you have to get him to change his mind. But this is no simple request. As Esther explains in response back to Mordecai, she says, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. 
So Esther's saying, look, Mordecai, you don't just, you don't just barge into the, the royal chambers and talk to the king. You have to be summoned. You only talk to the king at his request. Anything else is a death wish. Unless he happens to extend the golden scepter when he sees you, if you barge into the king, you die. And so Mordecai, you need to know he has not called on me for more than 30 days. She's saying, I'm, look, I'm not naive. I know he's got a large harem of young, beautiful women, and he is not a one-woman one kind of guy. So apparently, he's not as into me as he once was. And you want me to barge into the king's chambers and tell him that he's made a mistake, that he doesn't know how to rule his kingdom? That's not going to work. That's suicide. But Mordecai pushes back. He refuses to relent. He reminds her of what's on the line. He reminds her that her life is no accident, that God is with her, and that God has orchestrated her life even to the point of her becoming queen. And he says, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther, the fate of our people is in your hands. You didn't ask for this responsibility, but here it is. Esther, you've, you've not been brought to this point in your life for comfort and luxury. You've not been brought to this point in your life just to become the most desirable and attractive woman in the kingdom. So don't let your success at fulfilling society's stereotype for women blind you to what God says your life is all about. Do not become diverted by a shadow mission. And Esther says, you're right. You're right, but I can't do this thing on my own. I need God to move. And she's essentially saying, I will offer my blood. I will take the risk, but I need God to bring the thunder. It's this amazing moment, right, of faith and courage. She says, go, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And you think about the courage of Esther in this moment. I will not allow my life to deteriorate into a pursuit of comfort and elegance. Right? There is way too much at stake in the world. So as terrifying as this is, this is my calling. I will risk my life. I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. So she offers her blood and begs God to bring his thunder. So Esther starts fasting and praying, and Mordecai is fasting and praying, and all the Jews throughout the capital city are fasting and praying, and they are crying out to God to do what only God can do. They are crying out to God to bring his thunder. Now, <clears throat> I taught on this idea at like, at like a pivotal uh, time in, in our church four years ago, and we, we came together, and we fasted, and we prayed, and God moved. And I just want us to, to I want to recap what happened. Because you guys, when you think about all that happened, it was nuts. Um, when Brickview started, we met at Linwood High School for 12 years. Don't let that number just go over your head. 12 years. 
we met at Linwood High School. So we set up and tore down all of church every week, and we had no space that was ours outside of that four-hour window on Sunday mornings. And in that time, God did really some beautiful things in people's lives. And I, w- I could name many of them, but, but we, at the same time, we were a small church just fighting for survival every month. Not sure that we had enough people and finances to continue. And we, we just, we were always on the verge of not existing. Some of you remember it. Like, oh, I don't want to go back to that. But around the 11-year mark, after doing what we'd been doing for over a decade, our board met together one night and we decided to get nuts. And we said, you know what? Let's pray for a facility of our own. Now, we didn't have the money to do anything, right? We had just a few fishes and loaves, not nearly enough. But we said, let's, let's bring God all that we've got and ask him for a miracle. Let's ask God to do what only he can do. Let's like, let's like not just sort of give lip service to this. Let's like really, really pray every time we meet and in between. So a few months later, Ann Herbig, who was on the board at the time, came, came into our board meeting and said, hey, the church right next to my house in Briar is vacant. It's just sitting there. You guys want me to look into it? And we were like, eh, okay, sure. I mean, what can it hurt? But if it is available, we can't possibly afford it. Like, we pay $1,700 a month for Linwood High School, just to use it for four, four hours a week. And even with that, like, even with that, we're barely surviving. But what the heck? I mean, go look at it. And amazingly, you guys, make a very long story short, we were able to rent this space from the church that outgrew it and moved. And the church that, that owned it said to us, okay, so you can't afford what it's worth. You can't afford the rent that you should. That's okay. We've been blessed with a new facility ourselves, so what can you afford? And we worked it out, and suddenly we had this space 24-7. You guys, it was like heaven. But the church renting it to us said, hey, just so you know, we have no intention of selling it to you, ever. Um, You're going to have to rent it. And we were like, great, right? We're we're just happy to have a full-time space. Then about... Two years later, the pastor was over here looking at some stuff, and we bumped into each other, and and he said, hey, uh, you know what? Just to let you know, we're we're thriving in our new space, and we're seeing less and less of any potential need for this space. And so I know that I said we don't want to sell it, but if we did, would you guys want to buy it? And I said, well, Sure. Yes, of course. But we can't afford it. So he says, well, what can you afford? Come up with that and let's talk. And again, to make a very long story short, we gathered as a church and we fasted and we prayed and we spent several months crying out to God to bring his thunder. We we also all started praying about what we might be able to give financially as individual families. We started thinking about sacrifice, extra giving, okay, blood. And you guys, crazy, crazy, crazy stuff happened. It turned out the building was worth $1.4 million. 
There was no freaking way <laughs> that our little church could possibly do that. But guess what? They agreed to sell it to us for 650000 Okay, less than half of its value. Then out of nowhere, our denomination said, there seems to be momentum behind what you guys are doing, and we want to get on board with this. Here's a $150,000 grant. Here you go. This insane amount of money just to help with the purchase. Like, you guys, a grant, just for those of you that don't know finances and what a grant is, a grant is $150,000 of free money. <laughs> and we said, yes, please. And then we came together as a church to put our money together. And you guys, this itty-bitty, teeny-tiny little church on top of what everybody was already giving just to keep, keep us going at the time, this little tiny church pledged over $360,000. And so not only were we able to make our down payment, and not only did we secure a, a reasonable interest loan, but we, we, we had enough in there to be able to hire a third staff member, like a third full-time staff member. And we had enough to renovate the entire building, and we needed to because it had issues. And we had enough to put away a nest egg for future repairs, and suddenly we owned a beautifully renovated building. And I cannot explain like, strongly enough to you how impossible this all was. But the real beauty was that amid thinking all about blood and thunder, as a little church community, we had to answer vital questions. We had to really, when people are thinking about ponying up more money, we have to be thoughtful about what the heck we're doing. So we had to ask questions together and wrestle with questions together like, what do we exist to do? How do we do it? Why does it matter? And, and what might happen if, if we were successful and God moved among us? And we started to get deeply unified around our mission together. Passion, vision, anticipation, a willingness to sacrifice. And suddenly we were a church thoroughly united around vision. Not just a group of people who, who had some shared preferences, but what became most important for us wasn't church style. It was, it was what God was calling us to do and be together. Okay, so fast forward. Fast forward about nine months. When COVID hit, we were suddenly postured so well to be able to walk through it. Like if we, you think about this, if we had still been in a school, you guys, we would have had nowhere to meet. No churches were allowed in schools for like two years. We would have had no space whatsoever. And because we were so deeply unified around our mission together, during COVID, we were able to be especially, like exceptionally gracious with one another. Like think, okay, what's, I don't wanna create nightmares, but <laughs> Zoom, <laughs> masks, church online, life groups, ID groups online, right? Limitations. Were they necessary? Well, not everyone agreed, of course. And then you throw in the political and social justice tensions that were pretty much dividing everybody, and we didn't all agree on that stuff either. But here's what we agreed on. We agreed that unity for our church matters. And we agreed that our mission matters. So our shared mission took priority over our individual preferences. And we were able to do extraordinary things in COVID. 
Like we increased as a group and as individuals, we increased like exponentially our giving to organizations that were providing for the needy. You guys, next door, we started a micro school for kids that were needing an outlet. So kids came together to do school together because they were desperate for social interaction. I mean, and their, and their families were desperate for them to get out. <laughs> I mean, if you remember back, suddenly parents were working from home just all of a sudden in one week and all of a sudden, and, and their kids were at home. And they're trying to, to do Zoom meetings, mom and dad, with their various companies and the kids are there and they're trying to do online school. It was unmanageable stress for so many families. They needed an outlet and we were able to provide something that we called the village. And then God sent us this punk from Arizona named Trevor. <laughs> and he was like, you know what? I haven't been following Jesus the way I'd like. I'm, I'm looking to get back with people that know Jesus and love Jesus. So I've come back to, to re-engage. And um, I have a teaching degree, but all the schools are online, which sucks. <laughs> so I don't know what I'm going to do. And Jen said, oh, yeah, I got a job for you. Let's go. And they did, and it was beautiful. And suddenly, you guys, we had a newly renovated building and a fourth full-time staff person, and we had a school meeting in our church Monday through Friday, and it was incredible. It was a season of unprecedented blood and thunder, and I could go on and on and on about stuff that happened. Okay, back to Esther. She's facing an impossible situation, right? So she and Mordecai and all the Jews in the city, they fast and they pray and they cry out to God to do what only he can do. But it isn't just about the prayer and the fasting. God's thunder. Esther is willing to offer the blood. She declares to Mordecai, after three days, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. And Esther is making it known. I'm willing to do my part. I'm willing to do what it takes. I'm willing to do everything I can in the hopes of seeing God do what only he can do. So we will all pray, and then I will act. So at the end of three days, can you imagine the angst inside her? She stands in the king's inner court, and she waits, and she's called into the king's chamber, and he reaches out his golden scepter. She's going to live, at least for the moment. Chapter 5, verse 3. Then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, we, we have to understand that culture a little bit. Like, this statement, even up to half the kingdom, that's like king talk for, what is it you want, sweetheart? I'm in a good mood today. I mean, if Esther had said, okay, I'll take half the kingdom, his mood would have changed real fast. <laughs> so she can't just like come out and say, okay, well, listen, you've made a huge mistake. I, I'd, I'd, I'd like to have you revoke the unalterable law of the Medes and Persians, and I'd like to have you put down your chief of staff. So what she says is, I'm having a party, and I want you to come and bring Haman too. Now, Esther has street smarts, and she knows this king, and she knows that he has never turned down a party in his life. <laughs> so at the banquet, the king asked Esther what she wants. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. 
Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. She's just building the anticipation. She's just showing like incredible skill, crafting the scenario, working the situation to the best of her ability. By coming to the second banquet and acknowledging his favor with Esther, the king has almost already agreed to her request. And so when you think about this woman, her intelligence and her timing are, are brilliant. And now we're ready for the conclusion of the story, but not quite yet. The author is going to leave us in suspense. And he switches away from that, that situation to focus on Haman for, for a little bit. So chapter 5, starting with verse 9, Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor, sh- nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. And then he says... But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So Haman had a shadow mission that so many people in our culture have. It's called more. More wealth, more power, more success, more applause, just more. And the problem with the shadow mission is that it's never enough. In fact, one of the signs that you're living for a shadow mission is a chronic sense of emptiness because shadows never satisfy. And do Haman's wife and friends challenge him, right? Do they, do they say, Haman, your, your trouble stems from being an egomaniac. Like if you were to shift your focus from how the kingdom can serve you to how you can serve the kingdom, you might suddenly find joy and goodness and fulfillment beyond your wildest dreams. Do they tell him the truth in love? Heck no. They just played to his ego. Okay, verse 14. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, here's what you got to do, bro. Have a pole set up reaching to a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. Then the story shifts back to the king. Okay, another new scene. That night, Xerxes can't sleep. So the king asks his servants to come in and read to him from a book, a book called The Chronicles of the King. (laughs) Guess who the book is about? His servants say, well, what shall we read to you? And he says, let's read that book about me. Like his preoccupation with himself is, is limitless. So as they're reading about the king, they they come across the story of Mordecai, about how one time he exposed a plot to assassinate King Xerxes. And suddenly, as they're reading, King Xerxes thinks, you know what? Mordecai was never properly honored or thanked. We should do something special for him. 
Next scene. Haman shows up, but he doesn't know about the king's reading. Okay, chapter 6, verse 6. When Haman entered, the king asked him, hey, you're a smart guy. What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed upon its head. Then let the robe and horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. What a fantasy. And the king says, hey, that's a great idea. So imagine this moment. That is a great idea, Haman. The man I delight to honor is Mordecai. You pull the horse. <laughs> and from here, it's all downhill for Haman. After he parades Mordecai through the streets, Esther holds the banquet the next night, and now the time is right, and so she tells the king about the plot to destroy her people, and she reminds the king that the edict still stands. And the king says, who would do such a thing to you and your people? And she points, and she says, this wicked Haman. And Haman ends up being impaled on the pole he built for Mordecai. Mordecai then gets appointed to be the new right-hand man to King Xerxes. The king reverses his edict to kill the Jews and instead makes an edict that all Jews are to be highly honored. And we're told, and this is nuts, we're told that people all over the land committed themselves to the God of the Israelites. And in the end, God is glorified all throughout the kingdom. All because one man was willing to name reality to a young woman. Perhaps you have come to your position for such a time as this. And one woman said no to a shadow mission of safety and security and wealth and status and yes to following God. The truth is, our lives are always a part of a bigger story. And we don't get to see how God is working behind the scenes. Right, and this, what's, this is what's going on in the story of Esther. You guys know that Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions the word God. And I think it's for a reason. I think it's because, as is often the case in our lives, God is hiding just off stage. Like, you, you can't see him, but he's behind the whole story. I mean, think about it. How is it that, of all the women in the empire, a Jewish girl named Esther is the one who becomes queen? How is it that of all the men in the royal guard, it's Mordecai that saves the king from assassination? How is it that the king should have insomnia on the very night that Haman has the pole set up for Mordecai? How is it that of all the stories, the one read to the king that night was the one of Mordecai saving him from assassination? How is it the scheming murderer becomes the victim of his own schemes? How is it that Mordecai takes over Haman's old position? How is it that instead of being killed in a massive genocide, the people of Israel become a great light that draws multitudes of foreign people to God. The writer wants us to understand 
that in unseen, unknown, unnamed ways, like on crosses and in carpools and in cubicles and on construction sites and, and in schools, God is present and God is at work often behind the scenes. Like blood and thunder are still working together in our day. They are. Like, how is it that we bought the church for $650,000? How is it that we saved $750,000 from the $1.4 million that it was worth? How is it that we were then gifted a grant of $150,000? Guys, if, if you're doing the quick math, that's $900,000 that just appeared to us out of thin air. God just said, boom, here you go. Thunder. Then God sent Trevor from Arizona, and he led our micro school. And then when a permanent position on staff opened up, he, he was able to step seamlessly right onto our staff. And I could go, you guys, I could go on and on and on. And I, I have just seen blood and thunder work together again and again. In fact, my, my entire journey with Jesus has been a blood and thunder experience. Um, at first, I was, I was drawn to Jesus, but I had so much doubt about all of it I just, I, and I was like, this, I can't get over this. It seemed beautiful and it seemed compelling in so many ways, but I, I just couldn't give myself fully to it. It felt like I had doubts that were insurmountable and they would never go away. But I kept showing up to stuff and I kept bringing the blood and I cried out, just continually cried out, God, if this, if this is somehow real, help me to see it and help me to believe it and help me to live into it. And over the next few years, you guys, I can't even explain what happened, but God did exactly that. And many of you have been on a journey like that, and you just kept showing up, offering the blood, and God did a deep work in you and brought the thunder. Now, some of you are in a spot like that right now. Like you're drawn to Jesus, but there's just a part of you that, that, that can't go all in. You have doubts. Here's what I'll say. Keep showing up. Keep bringing the blood. And then ask God to move. Ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask him for thunder. And you might be amazed at what happens over time. I had the same experience with, with marriage. Um, I've talked about this a lot, but when Jen and I got married, first couple of years, we struggled bad. I mean, at times, it, just, it was just hellacious. Our first few years were filled with so much anger and disappointment, and we were fighting so much and just confusion and hurt. But we both just kept showing up, right, and bringing the blood, and we kept praying for God to move. And he did. As Jen mentioned earlier, we, we just spent like a week and a half kind of out of town. We, um, we went down to... Oregon to Cannon Beach for three days for this pastor's retreat thing that we go to every year. And then because I didn't want to preach at the end of that, we knew we weren't going to be at church. We decided to take six more days and go to Phoenix and um, just spend some time doing some thinking about ministry, thinking about vision, where our church is. And you guys, it was, it was amazing. Um, God met us there and it was so good. But also, it was just really good to be together. Um, Jen has become like my best friend in the whole world. You are my best friend in the whole world. 
There is nobody I would rather spend time with than her, except for maybe Bob. <laughs> I mean, we are, I just, I can't imagine a marriage that's, that's, that's more beautiful than what we have. And you are an amazing person, but you were not at first. You guys, I, I could give you example after example of how blood and thunder work together. I just, again and again and again. And this is my last uh, message in this, in this series. But I just, I just want to leave you guys with this. Your life is a part of, of a much bigger story. And God is always working. He's always working. And it's all often behind the scenes in ways that you can't see at the time. And things look like they're going nowhere. And you're like, God, what are you doing? And then down the road, you know, many years later, you go, oh, okay. So when you bring the blood and you do your part and then cry out for thunder and ask God to do what only he can do, what I'm telling you is crazy stuff happens over time. I have seen it again and again and again. So as we think about metamorpho and we think about a better you and transformation this is what i will tell you you put those two things together and it is the best version of you some people deny god's activity in our world and they say you know all that all that stuff all that stuff even all the stuff that i talked about this morning it's just coincidence right or it's just placebo but here's what i've experienced in my life when I do what God says to do, and when I ask him to do what only he can do, there is an amazing increase in coincidences. Blood and thunder are a powerful combo. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the journey that our church has been on, that we have this place to be in, that we were able to walk through COVID in a just miraculously united kind of way together. I thank you for the amazing things that you're doing in our church. I thank you for the amazing things that you're doing in individual lives. And God, I pray that collectively we would be a blood and thunder kind of people, but also that individually we would be blood and thunder kind of people who don't just do ministry together in the organized stuff of church because that's such a small percentage of our lives, but that we would be people who would begin to perceive your kingdom and your activity all around us in our life in the people that we interact with day to day. And God, I pray that you would help us to, to see the mission that you're giving us and to embrace it and to not settle or, or like just devolve into some sort of trivial, selfish kind of life pursuit but that you would help us to see all that you have for us, all that you want us to do in our world, in the lives of those that we interact with every day, and you would bring your thunder as we bring the blood, as we, as we begin to have conversations or look for ways to love or look for ways to serve, that you would just wrap that in your thunder and do more than we can possibly imagine with it. God, imagine if, if all of us in this room went into our world and did what we, just offered the few fish or bread of loaves, and then you just multiplied that and multiplied that and multiplied that. I think that's how this is supposed to work. So God, help us live into it in a powerful, powerful way.